Hi, One Goal community. It's Elaine Boyd, Pelotonia's Event and Volunteer Operations Coordinator. Since 2008, Pelotonia has raised over $236 million for innovative cancer research. And thanks to our partners, 100% of those funds have gone directly to research at the James at Ohio State. Together, we will see an end to cancer. To get involved in our one goal, visit pelotonia.org. That's pelotonia.org, or click on the link in the episode notes. This podcast is powered by Pelotonia. To learn more about our goal 10 cancer, visit pelotonia.org or see the link in the show notes. For some reason, when I uh, met with uh, folks who work with Panatonia, I, I really, truly, genuinely feel this is just part of my family. There's a small subset of advanced lung cancer patients treated with immunotherapy that are alive five, six, seven years later with no evidence of disease and off of therapy. And this is revolutionary uh, and transformational. Just maintaining that hope, I think, is really important for patients. Welcome to One Goal, a podcast from Pelotonia. We're a community dedicated to funding innovative cancer research through a three-day experience of cycling and volunteering. I'm your host and Chief Operating Officer of Pelotonia, Joe Apgar. Your journey with us to the finish line begins now. Pelotonia is powered by an amazing community, and it's through research that we will see an end to cancer. We want to thank our major funding partners, the American Electric Power Foundation, Huntington, the L Brands Foundation, and Peggy and Richard Santulli. In July of 2019, we opened an exciting new chapter in our community's history with the founding of the Pelotonia Institute for Immuno-Oncology, or PIIO for short. With a pledge of $102,265,000, honoring the original 2,265 Pelotonia riders in our inaugural 2009 ride, this new institute at The Ohio State University will be blazing a pathway into the next frontier of cancer prevention and treatment. Immunotherapy holds a great deal of potential, but in order to understand why, we're going to talk with two of the brilliant minds who are working daily to move the PIIO forward. They are Dr. Zihai Lee, the founding director of the Institute, and Dr. David Carbone, the director of the James Thoracic Center and part of the translational immuno-oncology team. But first, let's get to know who they are in this episode titled, Fighting Cancer's Force Field. So let's start with David, can you share with us, you know, as far back as you can remember when you were interested in science, when sort of your interest in medicine and ultimately uh, cancer started? So, so, so we have like three hours, is that what <laughs> <laughs> I had an uncle who was a World War II fighter pilot and worked for NASA and I was just really into the space program and science uh, from, you know, as long as I can remember. And, and uh, he was an engineer and I, I, um, he taught me how to fly a plane and, and uh, I was very interested in electronics and computer science, you know, back when computers really you know, were hand wired. I was a uh, engineering, electrical engineering, a physics major in college. But then uh, I worked in a medical physics lab and actually got more interested in the medical aspects than the than than do sitting at a desk and wiring and and talking to computers all day. So I applied to medical school and got into Hopkins Med 
and um, I hated medical school. It was, <laughs> it was just all memorization, no science, no quantitativeness, no rational thinking, just uh, experience and memorization. And, uh, and so I, after my first year of medical school, uh, I said, you know, I can't do this unless I do something scientific. And so I applied for the PhD program and, uh, and got in as a second year medical student into the MD PhD program where I did a PhD in genetics. When I was finishing my training, I was trying to figure out how to use my love of medicine and my, my new knowledge of genetics. And then I heard a lecture by a guy named John Minna, who's still an active lung cancer researcher in the field. And he, he talked, I was a tired post-call resident, and he talked about lung cancer and how he had just discovered recurring gene mutations in lung cancer and how awful the disease it was and how common a disease it was. And so you know, I said, this just rang a bell. And I said, this is what I want to do. Um, I want to study lung cancer, and I'll bet genetics are going to make a difference in, in that disease. And uh, so after the lecture, I went up to him and said, you know, I, I, want, to, I want to work for you. And uh, so I've, I've spent my whole career uh, trying to figure out how to apply science to clinical medicine for lung cancer and how to learn from my patients to discover new science. Zihai, want to give you the chance to sort of share your um, background and upbringing and, um, you know, ultimately sort of how you, you ended up uh, in medicine and, and science. Uh, I grew up in central China, a uh, small village uh, between Yangtze River and Yellow River. Not much football there yeah, in China. Yeah, no, no big, uh, no Big Ten no, conference over there in no China. No Big Ten conferences, no, uh, no NBA. Um, in any case, uh, my parents, the they all in education. So my my dad um, is a Chinese scholar, um, very much into Chinese calligraphy and Peking opera. Actually, my mom uh, was a math teacher. So uh, education uh, is definitely a priority in, in the family. So when I was a kid, I was very much interested in math and wanted to be a mathematician uh, growing up. But uh, right after high school, and so somehow I got uh, enrolled in, uh, in medical school. So uh, in China, we, we, we don't really have a college. We just go straight from high so you, school. You went from high school to medical school. To medical school. So I was, uh, I was 15 when I entered medical school. Um, so this is real life uh, Doogie Hauser. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so to speak. Uh, but that was a tra- transformation event, obviously. I didn't know much about medicine. I didn't realize uh, so much material. And I was uh, searching the purpose of, of life and, you know, why I was there. But uh, this year, when I entered medical school, 1979, was also the year when uh, WHO um, declared the global eradication of smallpox. So that was a huge thing. And uh, so vaccination 
became something that was very magical uh, to me. So uh, uh, maybe that and plus a few other events uh, really uh, solidify my interest in, in immunology, uh, this almost mystical fact of self-defense against diseases and the fact that the uh, immune system can recognize something, something evil like smallpox virus. I had the uh, fortune to come to New York City to study for PhD. So um, um, came to uh, Mount Sinai School of Medicine in, uh, in Manhattan. So I did my residency in internal medicine in, in the Bronx, uh, Montefiore Hospital. And then I, I went all the way to the Pacific uh, Northwest to Seattle, Washington to complete uh, my uh, medical oncology fellowship. I am one of many people who are fighting the fight. And um, I feel like, um, you know, we actually can do this. So uh, very excited to be here. How do you think about your work from a standpoint of, of being able to change the lives of a lot of people that you might never meet? I've always wanted to enjoy going into work every day and thinking that I'm, I'm making that, that the world is, is maybe a little bit of a better place because I exist. The fact is now that I can be much more hopeful and, and positive uh, with patients in the clinic. One of my patients founded a, a, a foundation that that's donated millions of dollars for lung cancer research uh, over the years. And, and being in, uh, engaged with international communities, I was the president of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer for a couple of years and on the board of directors for 10. Uh, and it's just, it's great to interact with uh, smart and talented people around the world uh, making progress in this disease. And it's been a real uh, honor and a privilege to be able to uh, to do that. Zihai, is that... Uh, curious what gets you out of bed every morning. Yeah. Like, what are you chasing? What, like, what's the dream look like yeah. for you? I can tell you a story. When I was a, a intern, um, first year intern, actually first week of my internship, and I was in the ER and uh, I was told to admit a patient um, uh, to the hospital. And this patient was a 21 year old uh, young lady with absolutely no problems, no symptoms, no complaints. The only reason she was sent to the emergency room was because she had very low uh, platelet counts, very low blood counts. Um, as a result of uh, unclear reason, but this was discovered uh, from a physical examination uh, for employment. And so I admitted her to the hospital and the next day I was reporting the case to my team. They call, they call a medical emergency, they call a code. And turns out this was my patient. She went, went um, to a cardiopulmonary arrest. Um, so we actually coded her for about two, two hours. Eventually, we were not able to save her life. 
And I was very, I was devastated. And this was, again, my first week of internship. And um, I guess uh, that was a, that was a visible. Uh, so my chief, my chief resident came and talked to me. And he said, it was not your fault. And I, I however, felt like uh, I need to go back to the lab. You know, we want, we want to know why things happen to people, right? And could we do something? And to save, 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 uh, you know, people's lives. So I, I always remember that case. I remember her appearance, uh, you know, it's a beautiful face and so on. So this, this kind of thing that keep us going. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. That's, yeah, it's motivating. David, you, um, you know, after, I believe it was after medical school and after your PhD, um, you had a personal bout with cancer that, that probably really changed the way you look and think about things. In 1999, so it's just been 20 years. That was a um, unanticipated aspect of my medical education and not one I recommend for general uh, you know, training, but um, I was a lung cancer oncologist uh, uh, at at Vanderbilt at the time, um, a tenured professor, and and uh, I was uh, shaving actually at a annual meeting in preparation for a lecture, and I looked at my neck, and my neck veins were sticking out, and my head felt kind of funny, and I knew that standing up your neck veins aren't supposed to be sticking out. I said, this is not right. So after I got back, I, uh, that's actually a, a, a sign of uh, what's called superior vena cava syndrome, where you have a blockage of the venous return from the upper half of your body to, um, to your heart. And I also felt around and I, I felt I had some lymph nodes in my uh, left, uh, what's called supraclavicular area. So I got home and I got a chest x-ray on myself. I could do that kind of thing back then. And uh, it it showed a a mass in the center of my chest as well as a lung mass. And um, I said, well, it sure looks like I have stage three lung cancer, which is a a way that sometimes these lung cancers present. But of course, I, I had lung cancer on the mind because that's what I did every day. And so I got a CT scan, which confirmed the mass and the, the adenopathy. And, um, and then I remember very clearly uh, presenting my own case at our thoracic tumor board. And at that time, we had x-ray films, and, you know, not computerized images. And so I just put up the uh, CT, my CT scan, and I said, you know, this... Uh, this person has a uh, uh, enlarged mediastinal lymph nodes and a lung mass and looks like stage three cancer and we need to make a diagnosis and this is me. What was the reaction in the room? <laughs> well, um, you know, these guys are very professional. They, you know, one thing I love about oncologists is they're, they're people that um, deal with tragedy every day and deal with 
surprises and they they know how to handle these kinds of things and so it was it was just a totally business interaction i mean they obviously hadn't known me and and empathized but they said you know they they get to work and i've actually um given several lectures uh on what it means to be uh, a a cancer patient and especially a an oncologist as a cancer patient and, and just, you know, to kind of briefly summarize it, um, I think it's easier and harder. Uh, it's easier because you know, the language, you're not learning a new vocabulary, like, a you know, if someone's a truck driver and you're telling them they need a PET scan, I mean, they have no idea what that means. I knew the language, but also I knew the docs I wanted. I, I knew and trusted the people I went to. That surgeon I'd worked with, I knew he was good. The medical oncologist I, I went to, I knew I knew him personally. And the other, and one thing, cancer patients don't have the um, don't have the privilege of of doing is is knowing their docs. Often they're assigned to an oncologist that they're trusting with their life. And they have no idea, you know, they don't understand the language. They don't understand what the tests are show, showing. They, they're they forced to trust this guy they don't know with their life. And and so in that respect, it was easier for me as a, an oncologist in that setting. But it's also harder in the fact that uh, oncology patients, they have no idea how ugly cancer can be if it's not successfully treated. And the other thing that um, it taught me, just not to dwell on it too long, but is is the impact of cancer on, on family, friends, life in general, that oncologists may not fully appreciate um, through regular medical training. And it was very clear to me, you know, how much uh, it affected all of those aspects of your life and not just uh, your health. So I think it has affected you know, my approach to patients um, in a in a positive way. Um, but like I said, it's not a recommended part of medical training. Yeah, it's kind of like the, uh, you know, if you go to a restaurant, you, you want to know that the chef has tried the cooking. Um, you know, so maybe that gives some of your patients a lot more comfort. So one of the things I want to talk about is, is to both of you, as part of your recruitment, Pelotonia had already started when, um, you know, when both of you arrived. And I'm curious if in your visits to Columbus uh, and sort of after you've started, what that felt like. Could you feel that the community was behind you? This wasn't just really a, you know, a, obviously it's a recruitment to an institution being Ohio State, but... Did you feel the sense of community in Columbus and with Palatania when you uh, were going through the recruiting process? Boy, uh, no question. Really, what what defines at the place is not not just the you know um, the Brigham and uh, buildings and so on, but uh, really the people. And I. Um, I also did not know much about Ohio before uh, coming here. I think I, I did give a one seminar 
uh, in Nationwide Children's Hospital. This was uh, maybe five, six years ago. But, uh, but I didn't really know much about the city. But then, uh, you know, uh, I came here and, and begin to interact with the community. Um, uh, you know, the University, uh, Panatonia, and many other organizations here. Uh, it was uh, it was something hard to describe, but the human emotional connection um, was almost immediate from the very beginning, uh, and it was was and has been growing uh, every day. Uh, for some reason, when I uh, met with uh, folks who work with Panatonia, I I really truly genuinely feel this is just part of my family, my, my brothers, brothers, my sisters. And so I feel like this is, a, this is a, something that should be, uh, should, should, should have always been there, you know, for every city, every village, we should have something like Panatonia, so extraordinary. Well, so I, I started um, in September of 2012 and, and I, Obviously, Pelotonia had been described to me during my recruitment, and and I actually rode in that 2012 Pelotonia before I had officially started uh, on the faculty here, and and it you got was you in early. Yeah, well, it was an incredible experience. I mean, we were staying in a hotel, trucked my bike up here, and um, rode in Pelotonia, and just the the experience of thousands of bicycles in one place and the enthusiasm uh, shown by the community where you're, you're biking down the street and you see a mom and kids in lawn chairs ringing bells and saying, you know, thank you for, for what you do. And it was, it was a unique experience. And I've been at multiple institutions uh, and I've never seen a community support like I saw here. Pelotonia looks a lot different this year. Obviously, we, we're not going to have the big physical event, uh, you know, our opening ceremony with 15,000 people, and then, you know, the next two days followed by a, a really fun and amazing uh, ride that we organized. But the community and, uh, you know, everyone's gone above and beyond and really flex their creativity. Um, and everyone's turning Pelotonia into their own thing this year. And so curious to hear... Uh, from each of you, what your Pelotonia looks like this year? I think the my Pelotonia is uh, is a uh, interesting alternative. I think uh, I see that uh, folks at Pelotonia has been doing a great job in uh, uh, promoting this this event. So for myself, I uh, I will will continue to ride bike, and uh, I set my personal goal of. Uh, Riding 20 miles per day for at least for at least 20 days before August 7th, so 2020. And I thought initially it was hard, but it's not. You know, I think I already hit a goal. I mean, I think I'm 21 times already, uh, 20 miles. Awesome. And I, I want to raise uh, as much fund as possible uh, to support research. David, what's your Pelotonia look like? What I decided is I would just uh, commit to doing some sort of aerobic exercise three times a week. 
Um, and so usually that um, is on our elliptical trainer at 4.30 in the morning when I get up. But the other one actually was one of the suggestions that um, was made for a possibility and it struck a chord for me. And and I committed to, to doing at least 15 hours feeding homeless uh, people. And it, it actually turns out that I've been doing that already through our church. Uh, my wife and I, once a month, go down to the West Side Ministry and we we prepare and serve food for homeless people. And we do usually 75 to 100 people in a day. Mm, wow. And it's in conjunction with a... Uh, a free store where people donate clothes and then they, the homeless people can just go in and they can shop, but mm-hmm. it doesn't cost them anything. And so um, I've committed to doing more of that. And so we've been doing it uh, probably twice a month uh, over the last few months uh, instead of once a month. And I've already hit 15 hours, mm. but I think it's uh, something that uh, grounds uh, me a little bit in, in some of the um, suffering that people have in our community um, as well as, as the, uh, the joyful things that we've been talking about with uh, uh, the community support of uh, cancer, for example. Uh, so Zihai, you know, last July, uh, we launched the, the Pelotonia Institute for Immuno-Oncology. The Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center accepting a more than $102 million gift from Pelotonia. The full amount, a nod to the 2,265 riders who participated in the first Pelotonia ride. And we had a really fun event down in front of the James, and it was a beautiful sunny July afternoon. I want to welcome you here for this incredibly special announcement. Supporters say the Pelotonia Institute will be a research frontier diving into a cutting-edge field. This is an entirely new paradigm of cancer medicine. Curious to hear from your vantage point as the founding director of this institute that means a lot to our community and has really inspired our community, what it was like for you, you know, to be up on stage that day and to be publicly launching uh, this new institute. Dr. Zihai Li is the director of the new institute. He says doctors hope to manipulate the body's immune system to fight cancer cells in a way that's more tolerable to patients. It actually can find and destroy the sneaky cancer cells wherever they hide. It's an extraordinary initiative from the university, from the cancer center, from the community. It was uh, something that Clearly, um, you know, my being um, deeply, it was uh, just an incredible uh, thing that we got to work together to do something um, so impactful, potentially, for a disease that's as dreadful as cancer. Lee says their work is cut out for them, and they won't stop until this treatment is effective for every patient of every cancer. One of the keys to understanding why the founding of our institute is so exciting is the promising potential of immunotherapy. So during this conversation, I had to ask them for an elementary explanation of this innovative treatment because I'm certainly no cancer doctor myself. I want each of you to explain immunotherapy, Mm -hmm. pretending I'm a fourth grader. Mm -hmm. See how I can handle that. Are Are you a good fourth grader? 
Uh, I am a, a above average uh, fourth grade student. Yeah, well, immunotherapy is essentially to utilize the immune system to treat the disease. It does not just apply to the treatment of cancer. Certainly, it can be applied to the treatment of immunodeficiency, congenital immunodeficiency, for example. And to apply to the treatment of infectious disease, uh, including COVID-19, for that matter, um, with antibodies, for, for example. So in a nutshell, it is to utilize the immune system to treat diseases. That's good. That's good. I feel like that might have been eighth grade level, but that's uh, <laughs> no. uh, but, but that's good. No, that's good. It's uh, and it's consistent with with everything. Maybe uh, I can do a more fourth grade. Yeah, let's, let's, let's David, say. go for it. So the way I explain it to fourth graders is, if you take a piece of bread and you put it on the counter, what happens? You get mold on it, and it and it stuff grows. So what keeps us from spoiling or getting mold or, or going bad like that? That's our immune system. That mm -hmm. our bodies have developed ways to fight off the, these things, this mold, the bacteria that grow, um, that surround us in nature. And this immune system has learned how to recognize things that are supposed to be there and are not supposed to be there and immunology is the study of how that happens and how uh, the body avoids killing itself with this powerful response cancers are different from normal cells they've also demonstrated that they can somehow avoid this immune system Cancers have learned how to put up a force field around themselves to keep themselves from being recognized by the same immune system that protects us from growing mold or bacteria. And uh, immunology has identified how that happens, and we now have drugs that can, can block that and then uh, tear down this force field that allow, and then allow the immune system to kill the cancer. And so those drugs that do that uh, are immunotherapies. They enhance the body's ability to recognize cancers. Yeah, that was good. I think anytime you use the word force field, that brings it, uh, that, that brings it down into that, you know, I think children, kids can, uh, they can relate <laughs> to a force calls, field. My wife calls me an overgrown kid. <laughs> So let's do a little, uh, I don't know if I call it role-playing, but just uh, thinking <laughs> forward into the future. So the Pelotonia Institute for Immuno-Oncology founded July 2019. So let's pretend the three of us are sitting around, a, you know, in person, uh, hopefully by that point, uh, having a cocktail. It's July 2029. What are you telling me about the Pelotonia Institute for Immuno-Oncology. What have we done? What successes have we had? Like, what's the vision? I think by 2029, I think at a time, uh, understanding, analyzing the patient's immune system within the cancer will be 
routine. We got to understand the immune system and to, to actually develop better and deliver more personalized immunotherapeutics. I think we will know more about the immune system. Uh, it's not just PD-1, not just CAR-T. We have, we have multiple therapeutic strategies, uh, small molecules, combination therapies, cell therapy, uh, biologicals, and so on. And I think more importantly, perhaps we will really see the incorporation of uh, immunotherapy uh, to the mainstream uh, immunotherapeutics, uh, uh, cancer therapeutics, uh, including surgery, chemo, and radiation. I think uh, 2029, we have a lot to hope for, uh, a lot to look forward to, and uh, require a lot of, lot of hard work for sure, um, which is why we are uh, going through the strategic planning. We are recruiting people. We want to bring the best and brightest mind to Ohio. And um, we also want to do things that's probably different from the traditional uh, academic endeavor. That is to not do things alone. You know, we will collaborate with, with other centers, both academic centers and industry partners. And I think we're going to have to work together and uh, not reinvent wheels. And basically, uh, the goal of really making impact in patients' life as, as something that we always have to uh, strive for. David, what's the, you know, what's 10-year vision for you? I was extremely pleased to hear the investment in the Pelotonia Institute for Immune Oncology because it represented the, the foundation, the, the infrastructure, the um, expertise that we need to take, you know, my clinical interest in um, immunotherapy and make it real and make it impact people. Um, bringing in basic scientists who really know how to do the assays, how to analyze a uh, individual patient's response, why some patients respond and others don't. Right now, we're in lung cancer in specific. We've made tremendous progress in the targeted therapies by defining which patients should get what therapies. And we're getting, when we make that match, we're getting 95% response rates and durable benefit. In immunology right now, we're seeing anecdotally really great responses. But basically, we're treating everybody the same way. Everyone gets immunotherapy. We're not selecting patients. We're using the same agent. Drug companies are developing, you know, the fifth, sixth, seventh drug in class. And what we really need is for the Institute with Zihai's leadership to find new targets, to find new ways of selecting patients for specific therapies. And I would envision in 10 years that we would do a battery of immune tests on every patient, just like we do for the genetic tests now. And we would say, this plus this plus this will work in this patient and not in that patient. We need to treat for this amount of time and not just forever or for years and years. Uh, but it'll, it'll, I think the clinic in some sense has now outpaced the, the science. 
where we're just using it in everybody and not really knowing what we're doing. I think Zihai and his institute uh, in the next 10 years will bring the science to the clinic in immunology where we better understand why patients respond and don't respond. And we'll have a panel of, uh, of um, tools to use for an individual patient and match those tools to the patient. And, and that will result in, in better outcomes for our patients. Yeah. Sort of the ultimate personalization of, of care and, and, and medicine. Do you ever, um, you know, when you meet with patients, you, you, it's hard to take a step back and sort of look at progress or look at success, but do you ever meet a patient or patients, um, you know, where you're able to give them a pretty positive prognosis or, or outlook, knowing that 20 or 30 years ago, how grim that would have been? I mean, do you ever like take a step back and say, wow, look how far we've come, like how no. amazing is this? You can't ever tell what's going to happen for an individual patient. I mean, statistics apply to populations and not to individuals. And so I never make promises. Even yeah. with uh, driver mutant uh, tumors, where the response rate's 95%, there's still 5% of people sure. who don't respond. But at least I can say we have much better treatments now than we did before that when I used to say, I used to tell people in the first encounter, a metastatic lung cancer patient, I used to tell them, you have an incurable disease, but it's not untreatable. And the treatments we had would prolong that survival on average a few months. But now I can't tell my patients that they're incurable. I have, there's a small subset of advanced lung cancer patients treated with immunotherapy that are alive five, six, seven years later with no evidence of disease and off of therapy. And this is revolutionary uh, and transformational. And so I, I find that I get people coming in to see me in a second opinion and their doctor has said, oh, you have metastatic lung cancer, you have four months to live and um, you, know, you should get your affairs in order. I say, you know, I can't promise you anything, but that with modern treatments, I. You you could live for years. You could see your daughter graduate from high school, or your son get married, or or these kinds of life events that um, were pretty much out of reach for these people. But now, because of modern therapies, uh, they at least have a, a hope of achieving. And just maintaining that hope, I think, is really important for patients. We hope that hearing this episode has given you a renewed sense of focused determination to see the moment when we begin to refer to cancer in the past tense. Thanks to Dr. Lee and Dr. Carbone for taking time out of their busy schedules to join us for this episode, and thanks to our major funding partners, the American Electric Power Foundation, Huntington, the Elbrands Foundation, and Peggy and Richard Santulli. It's because of them that every penny raised goes directly to innovative cancer research. This is what's coming up on One Goal. I did not think that I would survive this yeah. because, like I said, you'd have to see the, scan, the, the scans to, to, to make that point. Uh, but their, their ability to deal with cancer is, is advancing by leaps and bounds. He said, if you'd gotten this diagnosis in 2015, I'd have told you to go home and arrange your affairs. 
and he said after in 2018 they came up with this one drug uh, immunotherapy and you know, just this last couple of years they've come up with the two drug cocktail that i took which worked marvelously well in my case you've been listening to one goal a podcast from pelotonia season two will be hosted by me cancer survivor and chief operating officer of pelotonia joe apgar with interview and production scheduling by our marketing and communications team duo Emily Smith and Gabby Blauer. Produced, mixed, and sound designed at the studios of Wessler Media by Vince Tornero. Additional mastering by Joey Gerwin at Orin Judio. Special thank you to all of our guests for being so open and willing to share their stories. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as that will help others hear these empowering journeys. If you're curious about joining the Pelotonia community and making an impact on cancer research, please see the link in the episode notes or visit pelotonia.org. That's pelotonia.org.